Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, I am here with Brian Trilly, and Brian is a business partner of mine. He has a company called Optimized Marketing. He also has a company that sells machine language training to thousands of software developers all over the world. He's a serial entrepreneur, and he's very interested in the subject of AI, machine intelligence, machine learning, intelligence, sentience, and all of the issues that have suddenly been pushed right to the four of public consciousness with ChatGPT exploding in the last less than a year. And we had a conversation about a month ago over lunch. And he said, Perry, I think we should have a podcast conversation. I said, absolutely, we should. And so here he is, uh, Brian Trilly, and uh, he's working on a book about AI right now. And uh, he sent me a whole punch list of things for us to talk about. And um, I said before we got on the call, I've been thinking about the very stuff that we've been talking about intently for the last 10 years. And five years ago, it didn't seem like anybody really wanted to talk about this. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. And so without further ado, Brian, welcome to this conversation. Thank you very much. So glad to be here. So Brian, what bee was in your bonnet uh, before we even had that conversation last month that led you to be talking to me today? Yeah, it's not unlike your experience. And essentially it was, so I'm in the AI training, machine learning, deep learning realm. So that's what uh, my company, Pyme Search does. And when you look at the people talking about the implications of artificial intelligence and so on, uh, you come across this concept called the singularity, which is the point at which machine capabilities exceed human capabilities, or sometimes they say machine intelligence exceeds human intelligence. And the reductionist outline of that, I think Sam Harris put it very succinctly, which is, okay, if we're just a matter of intelligence is a matter of information processing. So the brain is essentially data storage, neural connections, and processing speed. So Ray Kurzweil did some interesting research on that. Then eventually we're going to hit super intelligence. And that's the exact same discussion you've been having for years, Perry, which is that the assumption that chemicals turned into code, turned into cognition. And if that's the case, then what they're saying about the singularity is true. But that's not right. the case. We know it's the opposite. That's right. And so because of that, all of the, the doomsday and the discussion on AI and singularities and so on that says, hey, eventually it's going to wake up. It's going to become conscious. It's going to have its own cognition. And then watch out because we're just termites. We're irrelevant. They're going to be so much smarter than us. And it, the entire discussion on AI is dominated by that. I mean, I, I don't know if you watched 100 videos on YouTube about this. If you could find one that didn't 
perpetuate this idea that, okay, within 18 months, we're going to have AGI or we're going to have these super intelligent beings. And so your research in biology has, I think, demonstrated stuff, you know, you've worked with Dr. Michael Levin and had him on your show has proven, and we can outline some of those or revisit them if you think it makes sense, that this isn't true, that you can't just say, okay, a certain level of neural connections all of a sudden is going to get more intelligent. So you know, we're just discussing like, for instance, is a bacteria smarter than ChatGPT? Because it has way less data storage, way less processing power, and way less neural connections. Mm -hmm. And so that question, which I think you would say, and I think most biologists would agree, is like the complexity of an individual bacteria, what it's able to do, and how it's able to adjust, and how it's goal-seeking, and how it does inductive logic, not just deductive like a computer does, would indicate, yeah, that it is smarter, that it is more intelligent. Okay, if that's the case, then clearly we're not going to just add a few more neural connections or a few billion more neural connections to ChatGPT and it's going to wake up. There's just no known process for that to happen. Well, I'd like to give a little historical background on this uh, to maybe help listeners orient themselves. In probably the late 90s, Ray Kurzweil put out a book called The Singularity is Near. Mm-hmm. It's probably 99 or something like that. And he said, Moore's law says computers double every 18 months and they get cheaper. And so, you know, two to the power of however many years, eventually, like that exponential curve crosses anything else that you can imagine. And he said, you know, somewhere around 2025 or 2030, um, computers are going to be collectively more intelligent than human beings. And then computers will be teaching computers, computers will be self-aware, computers will take over the world, and we'll upload ourselves into the computers and we'll live in the cloud and be immortal. This is what it says. Exactly. Now, if you know theology, if you know archetypal stories, if you know anthropology, you know that's just a Christian rapture story with they take God <laughs> out and they put the cloud in, but it's the same story. And it's a religious story. And I'm not going to steal your show because this is your conversation, not mine. But I put together a mathematical proof that said, no, a computer can't do that. And what I think is interesting is that what's happened in biology is it's, it's been taboo to suggest, for the most part, that plants and animals and organisms and cells are intelligent the way humans are. That's been taboo. Yet at the same time, there's lots of people, it's cool to think that computers are smart the way humans are. And that's actually completely backwards. I actually think in a sense, that a bacterium is smarter than a human. We can talk about that if you want. And a computer is dumb as a box of rocks. Even ChatGPT <laughs> is as dumb as a box of rocks. And so this is just, I'm offering this to set up. This is a conversation that takes the AI discussion. I think what you and I are, are saying is absolutely provable beyond any dispute true because it's mathematical proof but it takes the AI discussion in a completely different direction than where it's going yeah, absolutely and, and Kurzweil's, Kurzweil's book is a tome and honestly 
like 95% of it, I think makes sense. So like his projections of Moore's laws and increased computer power and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, I think all that is very reasonable. His mm -hmm. conclusion from that, that once you hit some level of matching the human brain's neural connections, that's the only reason they say ChatGPT hasn't woken up. It's got more processing power and it's got more data storage, clearly. It just doesn't have the neural connections yet. Once it does, then watch out. And it's like, well, okay, it's still better than a bacteria. It's more than a hamster. It's more than a dog. Like, you know, what, what are we saying here? And he said specifically 2029 would be the Turing test and 2045 the singularity would occur. Okay. okay. He was very precise in his <laughs> predictions. Okay. But it is based on this idea that cognition comes from neural connections. And so he even said that, hey, we have a provable method to achieve this. It's just we're going to reverse engineer the human brain. And so I'll give you a few examples of where reverse engineering the human brain will not get us there based on what we know about science. So one of them is called hydrocephalus, also called water on the brain. What does that mean? That means certain people have their brain replaced with cerebrospinal fluid instead of having the normal gray matter. And so research has been done by a doctor in the UK, his name's Dr. Lorber. And he said that about half of the people that have 90% of their more of their brain replaced by cerebrospinal fluid are very disabled. They're dysfunctional. I mean, the brain obviously isn't working, but the other half have IQs over a hundred. And he know, knew of an individual who 97.8% of their brain was just fluid. And yet they had an IQ of 126. They were yes, getting sir. a first rate education in mathematics. So the idea that your brain is the sum total of your intelligence clearly is just disproven by that alone. So let's make sure we're clear about this. So a person with hydroencephalus doesn't have 95, 97% of their brain. Their head is full of fluid. Fluid, yep. And some of those people are extraordinarily intelligent with three to 5% of a brain. Am I correct? That's correct. Yeah. So most of them are disabled. A good percentage of them are then sort of average 100 IQ or, or therein. And then every once in a while, you'll get one that's off the charts and is still really intelligent. So that's one fact that completely overturns most people's idea of how thinking occurs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the point would be, why does that happen? We, we don't know. But if we don't know, we can't reverse engineer it. Yeah. Right. And that's the point. Another one is terminal lucidity. Also, um, that one is people that generally have brain cancer, Alzheimer's is probably most common. And so their brains don't function. I mean, they're just not normally oper normal operational. And so for decades, potentially, if not years, they can't communicate. They don't know their loved ones. They don't have memories, you know, these types of things that happen. I mean, if you're familiar with Alzheimer's, then you know exactly sort of the trend line that they would be on. And then either hours or sometimes up to days before death, a good percentage of these people will have what's called terminal lucidity, which means they just wake up. So they have memories. They recall everybody that comes to see them. They know their family members. They're joking. They're, they're talking just like normal. Now, their brain physically has not changed. Mm. And this only happens at the point of death, which is really interesting. It doesn't happen like, hey, it happens this one day and then they live for three more years right? It's literally just before death occurs. Something happens. Scientifically, we can't define what that something is that says, okay, they've gotten their full faculties back, but their brain physically hasn't changed, right? 
So, so again, there's another completely <laughs> overturned notion of brain and intelligence story right there. Yeah. And then you can keep going down, down the list of like other strange things that we can't explain, whether it's memory transference, you know, people that get heart transplants, then develop the tastes, not just like physical tastes, although that's one like palate, but also musical tastes. I mean, there's some crazy stories out there and they're hard to kind of verify exactly, but some of them, and I will say this is probably more of, I don't know if legend's the right word, but I haven't been able to, to nail down the exact person this happened to, which always makes me skeptical. But they claim that uh, a girl got a heart transplant when she was 10, had, had nightmares because the person she got it from, the other young girl was murdered. And the dreams that she had led to the capture and conviction of that person. And there's, if you Google that, there's like a dozen stories about this out there, but it is hard to nail down exactly. Now, whether that specific story is true, I don't think it matters. There's dozens and dozens in the actual scientific literature that talks about memory transference where people get a heart from somebody else and all of a sudden they have their taste, their personality. I mean, all kinds of things happen. So like what's going on there? That's not even the brain. That's something else. I mean, well, let's call that the persistent recurrence of certain kinds of anecdotal stories. Sure. And we know that there are a huge number of neural connections in the stomach. And if you That's go, the next one I was thinking of. if you go to any depth in Michael Levin's work, he's in partly in the field of basal cognition, which is that all tissues have cognition, all tissues have memory, all tissues do computation, all tissues have sensing and perception. And so the idea that you need neurons or brain cells in order for this kind of thing to happen is flat wrong. And what people should notice about this conversation is in each of these examples, we've had about four now in this short conversation, all it takes is one counter example for each of these to completely overturn the traditional notion right. of how intelligence works. And just because you don't have a new theory to replace the old one doesn't mean the old one is any good or it doesn't mean the old one is reliable. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And the way that I would explain it is the statement from Kurzweil and Harris and Hinton, you know, all these guys that basically say, Hey, the singularity is inevitable is not true. Does that mean what we're saying means we won't achieve a singularity because we figure out that there is a physical component to these things? No, I can't say that we won't figure out all those four examples for memory transference and hydrocephalus and so on. Um, mm -hmm. No, we might figure out there is a physical component to it. And then maybe we can reverse engineer it. But to say, yeah, we're guaranteed on this path. No, that's not the case. I think Levin's work is amazing whether it's the new tubules, and I imagine you talked about that before on the show, um, or the memories from the caterpillars to the butterflies, and you know, at the cellular level, these things or much less complex organisms than humans clearly have those things you just mentioned in some level of cognition. And so the terms like sentience, uh, consciousness are thrown around a lot, and they're used in a way that makes them somewhat not basically worthless, I guess is a good way of saying it. So usually when the AI talks, AI people, AI gurus, whatever you want to call them, say sentience, all they mean is it has senses. And so you know, my background is a mechanical engineer. My car has a sensor that tells you the air temperature. Well, so does your skin, so to speak, right? But 
the way that that sensor tells my car that it can sense the environment is they say, okay, well, there, that's sentience. Okay. If that's all sentience is, then it's not really useful to us. <laughs> well, it, almost, it means the word has been dumbed down to uselessness yes. is what that means. Well, well that's not what it originally meant. Right. And that's the challenge. And I think that's happened with terms like cognition and intelligence even, right? Like for a lot of AI stuff, I think there's already way more intelligence than humans, right? Ask ChatGPT to write a poem in the style of Edgar Allan Poe about your running shoes. And it's going to come up with something amazing. Like that is high level of intelligence. It's going to beat me in Go. It's going to beat me in chess. It's going to like all these things that it can do better. It's going to bid better in Google AdWords. So if that's, if intelligence is just information processing, then it's already beat us. And yet clearly it's not better than human and total capabilities. Right. 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 So the sentience, I think that that one works, is worth unpacking because there's some interesting research done by that. Uh, Nicholas Humphreys put out a book. He's a philosopher called Seeing Red. And mm. he talks about a few different Are you familiar with the work? Well, I, not that book, but that's okay. a very common phrase in defining the word qualia. So Go ahead. So his is the sort of opposite of Kurzweil. Kurzweil was a very long book. His work was super short and essentially has one main thesis. He worked with a monkey for years that they'd removed the visual cortex. So the monkey could not see. Physically, its visual system did not work, but it could still identify objects. And so this was, I think, in the 70s and 80s when he was doing this work. And then eventually he came across a woman who had what they called blind sight. What this meant was that she could not physically see, but if you put something in front of her, like a red ball, she could perceive and tell you there's a red ball there. But she had no experience of the redness, no emotional reaction to it. There was no experience of the ball, the roundness or anything like that, but she could perceive it. And so this was essentially explained as, there's a big difference between a perception and then experience. So the fact that my temperature sensor in my car can perceive a temperature or a pressure or a position or any of these things is very different than a experience of it. And so when you consider his work's relatively recent, I started connecting some dots here. You're probably familiar with Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's one of the more popular psychology marketing style books. What does he say? He says, okay, well, there's fast thinking, which is I throw a book at your head, Perry, and you're not scared. You're not frightened. You just duck, right? <laughs> like there's just a reaction to it that has nothing to do with an emotional, which just perceiving the danger and you just react to it. Okay. Now, once it flies past your head, now you're like, what the heck's wrong with Brian? What is going on? Why is he throwing this book at me? And so now you're slowly kind of processing the, the thing that just occurred. So Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, um, one thing in economics, if I recall correctly, from this work of understanding. Okay, that's interesting. That sounds a lot like this perception and experience from Humphreys. But if we go back to the 13th century with Thomas Aquinas, he said that there's a will, and that will is made up of two parts, an antecedent will and a consequent will. Well, the antecedent will is your initial reaction to something that's not based on processing or rational thought, and then the consequent will is based on the rational thought. So, you know, seven, 800 years later, our science is starting to catch up to what philosophers have been saying for hundreds of years, and it all seems to just follow in line. And so if we're going to use the word sentient, it's important to understand, okay, there could be a sensing of something, you know, your, your thermostat is sentient, 
okay, sure. <laughs> I'm but actually willing to defend the word sentient. And uh, I mean, I would say, no, not okay. Not sure. My thermostat is not sentient. My thermostat is sensing. I used to write for a magazine when I was an engineer, I used to write for a magazine called Sensors Magazine. And there's a whole oh, really? of all, I mean, it's really fascinating field, all of the different ways that you can turn something that a sound, a light, a motion, a magnetism into some other kind of signal so that you would know what's going on. And of course, right. you need this in cameras and machines and robots and all of you know, automation. It's, it's all over the place in manufacturing. It's one thing to say that something has been sensed or something that has been detected. It's a whole other thing to say that a being is having an experience. Yes, absolutely. But I do think when people say sentient, it's implied the experience side. Mm, yes. Right? Well, I think there is some number of people, even really smart ones, who think that ChatGPT is having an experience, or they think or suspect that the Google search engine is having an experience. Yeah, and it's, it's a really tough thing to prove or disprove, though, because if you ask, I mean, I don't know if you remember, like, the ethicist slash programmer from Google, Lemoyne, I think was his last name, and he talked about his, his Lambda, their internal AI sentient. And it's like, well, no, it's not sentient. It's just responding based on what it's been taught. Right. But how do you prove, because it's telling you it's had this experience, you know, if you ask it about, again, ask ChatGPT about what does it feel like to listen to a Bose headset or something like that, right? Like, it's going to give you an experience but it's just repeating words from a massive database that explained from customer reviews or whatever. Yes. But then how do you disprove that it actually is having the experience? It's actually a really tricky thing. And so if it's understood that sentient means sensing, which is kind of how they've twisted the word. Okay, fine. I can agree if that's what we're saying it means. But if you're then saying, no, it has emotions and feelings. So like, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Mo Gaudet, who wrote a book called Scary Smart. Mm -hmm. um, he was an executive at Google. And he takes it to the extreme. He's the most extreme that I've come across that says, whenever Google Maps messes up his directions because there's traffic it didn't tell him about and he gets mad, he then apologizes to it because all these AIs are like our little children, right? And we're their parents. And it's like, man, how do you make that leap there's no evidence. I went through this whole book and I've watched a bunch of There's no evidence whatsoever that that's true, that they have this consciousness, that they have anything beyond. But he would also say it has a will. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? Well, my car, if I back it up and it's going to hit something, the sensor senses it and it puts its brakes on, right? It's making choices for us. Well, obviously, the Google algorithm for ads is doing the same thing, right? It's making choices. But making choices are not the same as a free will. A free will would be, my car's backing up, it's going to hit something, and it says, oh, this looks like fun, and it floors it, right? It, seeing that it's going to hit something and stopping is just working within the parameters it's given. Well, I know an AI researcher named Stephen Thaler, who for years, he creates AI machines, and you can look him up. He's been lobbying for years to give robots human rights. That's exactly what Gaudet says, yeah. He says... The, Shouldn't they be part of the UN Charter of Human Rights? And that is extremely dangerous and completely wrongheaded. 
Um, yeah, and that's a great segue to, okay, so the singularity is not near. <laughs> we're not inevitably going to have machines that wake up. That's We're not on that path. So the, the other big challenge we have is what's called the alignment problem. Should I outline that a little bit? Please, yes. I think yeah, that's so, the central idea of our conversation today. Yeah, the alignment problem, or it's sometimes called the AI alignment problem, simply means, okay, if these machines are super intelligent, then what happens when they're more intelligent than us? How can we make sure that the choices they make are aligned with human values, right? And so let me take a step back on the singularity thing. So just because the machines aren't going to wake up doesn't mean there aren't dangers. But the dangers are not from the machine deciding, it's from the puppet masters. If the machines are taught the values of tech bros who think that humans are destroying everything and they're the worst thing that's ever happened to the planet, then we're in trouble, right? Because those are the values that they're going to use to carry out all kinds of nefarious things. And so if ChatGPT or similar ones can beat the Turing test and they can convince somebody on the other side that they're a human, imagine how that could be used in mass manipulation, right? Mass influence all the deep fake stuff, like what's even real, <laughs> whether it's video or audio or, or all these types of things. So now if you have people controlling that with agendas or biases, which I mean, I can't imagine that ever happening, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a huge danger in that. And so the alignment problem to get the AI, whether that's human controlled, or if some way we reverse engineer all this stuff and we figure out all the problems we just discussed and it became sentient, but more likely it's just human controlled, then how do we get it to align? And the real answer to that question is the answer to what is a human? Like, why should the computer see a human being differently than a dog or an animal or different than a bacteria or different than another computer AI system? Mm -hmm. uh, and clearly there's people that don't think it should, like the one mm -hmm. you mentioned, Thaler and Gaudet. And if you can answer that, what is a human and why is the human unique, then you can train the AI under those principles and say, okay, this is what makes a human different than even you, you meeting the AR. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And th this is already an issue because three or four months ago, a man in Europe committed suicide and they went through his computer records and they figured out that he had been in a long series of conversations with an AI bot about how humans were destroying the planet and maybe the best thing that he could do was end his own life. And he did. Yeah. I mean, you could take that to a whole bunch of levels. So to assisted suicides is certainly one of them, or euthanasia, um, abortion. I mean, if you could convince people that being human or having more humans or having another human or whatever level you want to take it is not good, or you're a drain on society because you're not functional or utilitarian or, you know, your utility as a human because you have a disability isn't there. I mean, the AI can convince you of a whole lot of things. And there's another example from the guys that, that did the social dilemma, uh, just to kind of give you another point where Snap released their AI, which is like your personal AI friend on Snap, and you could just chat with them. And so they set up a scenario where they pretended they were a 13-year-old girl and they were talking to the AI about how excited she is to go on this date with this, you know, 18 year olds older, you know, gentleman, 31 years old, and how she was excited about her first time and all this stuff. And the bot was like, oh, well, that's great. You know, just be safe and blah, blah, and supported the whole thing. And what struck me was, okay, so they said, clearly we got to figure out how to align this, but they don't have in a tech world, a moral framework for even saying that wasn't right. 
what is your moral framework for saying that isn't appropriate? It isn't because technology says it isn't. It isn't even because biology says it isn't. There's something else there. And so the question of, okay, how do we align things with AI is not a technical software question. And yet the people dominating the discussion are technical software people, PhDs and very brilliant ones at that. It's ultimately a moral, philosophical, and even theological question. And the people in that realm that either feel comfortable talking about AI or are invited to the conversation is virtually none. So the good thing is I actually think the solution is pretty straightforward and I can't really take credit for it. I think the simplest solution is, is if we look at the history of man, this has been our question. What is a human? Why is human unique? How do we build governments and systems and so on around that? And the best answer to that came from the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, that we were made with an unalienable rights given to us by a creator for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that came from Locke, who actually said property. Locke got his from Father Francis Suarez about 100 years before that. And so the theological and philosophical tradition was built on Aquinas and so on, led to the development of human rights. Okay, well, that's interesting. Why did that come out of a Christian worldview? Well, the reason was, is because we understand that what makes a human unique is not something related to our physical nature. Yes. That we're made in the image of likeness of God. What does that mean? That means we have a soul that's given to us by our creator that makes us unique and different from anything else, right? If you could train an AI on that, and therefore all life, doesn't matter what abilities or disabilities or location or income or anything like that, that all human life is valuable. Now you have a better prescription to not have mass genocide. Because if it sees us as the same as a termite, well, normally we don't care about termites, but until they infest our home, and then it's like, okay, we gotta get rid of them. Well, if it sees, okay, well, the quickest way to solve healthcare costs is to eliminate people that, you know, are old or don't have real utility to add to the world or so on. Or, you know, the quickest way to solve global warming is to eliminate the third world because they have the highest carbon emissions per capita. And they could do it in so many different levels. You don't even have to kill people. You could just sterilize them, right? We had that in the United States. I used to live in North Carolina and they, the government unwillfully sterilized people in undesirable classes, low-income, poor people, and so on, right? That was only like the 50s. That wasn't that long ago that this happened. So it could do that. It could just convince millions of women across the world to have abortions. And it could pick and choose which women, it's like you said, the guy that they you know, convinced to have suicide. Like this is a real concern. And so if you don't solve the alignment problem, and I, I do believe the only way to do that is you have to realize and recognize that humans are unique and that cannot be something intrinsic to us physically. Meaning if you said it's because we have superior intelligence, well, not for long, based on their measurements, <laughs> right? So we're going to lose that battle. If it's a superior intelligence, eventually the, the machines are going to be better than us. If it's something that's really hard to measure, like sentience, meaning sense versus experience, okay, prove to me that that machine that tells you it can experience the both headset isn't actually doing it. Now we have this very flimsy method. So anything that you can, is it emotions? Well, a lot of AI people say that machines are already experiencing emotions, well, emotions, actually, if you look at some of the research on that, is very similar to the sense versus experience thing, that it is multifaceted. It's not just, hey, did I perceive it, but my reaction to it and how I feel about it is where the emotion comes into play. Mm -hmm. But again, how do you prove the machine doesn't have emotions, right? That becomes somewhat of a slippery slope to say, 
what tells me it has feelings. It tells me that it loves me and that it loves its family or whatever. So why can't I trust that that's true? It has to be something outside of the physical entity of us. And I, it's kind of a version of girls incompleteness theorem that you, you know, used in your proof. I don't know that I've wrapped my head around exactly how that would fit in, but it's, it's something like that, that unless it's something that you can say is intrinsic to humans that nobody else has, which is the immortal and material soul, you have no basis for human rights. We're just well, the same as a chicken. You grounded this last part of the conversation in the declaration of independence. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we can, uh, Consider these things self-evident. All men are created equal. Yep. Equal with life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and and then you tied it to Locke and to some of the earlier medieval philosophers. Alexis de Tocqueville ties it to Saint Paul, where he says, "In Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Absolutely. All are, are equal in Christ Jesus." And and also. These ideas are tied to in God created man in his image. And what I'd like to say about that is that it's a completely religious metaphysical idea. The idea that all humans have something special, have a divine spark. It is a explicitly religious idea. And it is not scientifically or empirically or logically provable at all. So um, I might disagree on the logic side of it. And I'll give you a sort of an example. So let's say you're listening to this and you're an atheist, you don't believe, and you say, wait a sec, this is crazy. These guys are going off the rails. Okay. <laughs> yeah, interesting. But consider this. So let's say you're the captain of a ship, Perry, and you're sailing and you see a couple of islands and you send out a crew to the first island to kind of explore and you watch, and they all get attacked and eaten, right? The people in the island are starving, they're hungry, there's meat, they eat them, one guy comes back and explains, hey, that's what happened, they were just hungry, and they said, hey, here's food. Then they send out the ship to the other island, another you know, one to, to determine what's there, and they say, hey, we're hungry, but we recognize that you're humans like us, and because God tells us we can't eat you, we won't, right? Mm -hmm. So in that instance, the actual proof that God exists doesn't matter in so much as the belief that God exists allowed you to live. Oh, and you know what? I totally agree with that. You end up with a better outcome starting with something that you could never prove. And my point is that yeah. you can't prove this at all. But what I think is interesting is that and Alexis de Tocqueville talks about this in Democracy in America. He talks about how this idea of equality was introduced by Paul. Nobody before Paul. Absolutely. Didn't find any ancient civilizations before Paul that thought that all humans were equal. It was a preposterous idea. Slavery was everywhere. Every spring you went down to the next village, you burned it down, you took all their stuff. Uh, and that's how the, the world worked. Sure. Paul introduced this idea and it became a juggernaut. It was the most, in some sense, it was the most irresistible idea in the, in the history of civilization that, you know, when a kid is sitting on your lap and you're reading your three-year-old 
you're telling him you have a divine spark. You are made in the image of God. You are special and your friends on the playground are special and you need to love them instead of hate them. And slavery is wrong. That idea was so powerful. And part of the reason is what you said is because when you start to act out that idea, you end up with a way, way better civilization than anything we had before. If you go back and read history and you find out what were the Phoenicians really like and what were the Greeks really like and what were the Romans really, what were the Babylonians really like? I mean, the, it's not good. No. And so these ideas are incredibly important. And when you introduce AI to it, so, so if computers are, have equal rights to humans, so that means we can't be telling computers what to do. We need to set the computers free. Like you end up in a ridiculous situation of yeah, making us the slaves of machines, which really makes us slaves of whoever owns, whoever owns the machines. Exactly. Whoever, whoever owns Google. Google. And you end up with a dystopia. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, the point there is that whether you believe in the existence of God or not, Human rights can't exist without that belief. So if human rights are important, you have to accept that. The thing that's different now than this conversation has ever had before, in which I think I agree with a lot of AI people or gurus, leaders, whatever you want to call them, that say, hey, this problem is the biggest problem that ever faced humanity. This might be bigger than nuclear war. Because, if again, if you get that wrong, and we say, you know what, let's have some assisted suicides or some euthanasias or some capital punishments, you know, any of these things. And the AI realizes that's acceptable. And it also says, hey, you want me to optimize for minimizing global warming or reduce healthcare costs or whatever. And it has the ability to manipulate people in mass. The answer to that question is no longer, well, Perry, you know, I disagree with you. So I'm going to be mad at you at our Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like that's how this used to happen in conversations. Now it's like, Okay, if we're whoever's wrong, now it could be hundreds of millions of lives lost, or entire countries, civilizations not reproducing. If that's you know just the abortion side or whatever, and so you have to say, okay, am I willing to stake the entirety of humanity on it? And the scary thing to me, to some degree, is there are people that believe we need to decrease population. That the worst thing that's ever happened to the planet is humanity, and some of them. Um, Elon Musk suggests that uh, Schmidt, I think it was, called him speciesist. So he was, you know, favors the human species. And if that's the mindset of the people that are controlling this, that we are just the same as dogs or cats or ants or whatever else, uh, man, that gets scary real fast. And so, so that's the difference. The, the consequence of being wrong about this is bigger than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. And the problem is not the AI waking up. The problem is who's pushing the buttons and yep. who's determining the values, because it is inevitable that values are getting baked in. I know this, <laughs> and you know this from online advertising. We both know that Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, they can't just let anybody advertise anything they want or it will destroy the platform. They have to have community standards. They have to have advertising standards, laissez-faire, do whatever, doesn't work. And as soon as you recognize that, then you have to start prioritizing what values 
and what definition of right and wrong. Yeah, um, and so it's interesting because when you look at the, uh, there's global, let's say committees that are trying to solve the alignment problem. And so they'll say something like, we need to work on a you know, universal group of principles that humanity agrees upon, right? And you say, oh, okay, yeah, I think I've heard that before. What is that? Moral absolutes. Well, yeah, but there's no moral absolutes. We have to respect diversity. It's like, but a universal principle that all of humanity agrees on, it sure sounds like a moral absolute to me, mm -hmm. right? Okay, mm -hmm. well, where do the moral absolutes come from? Well, is it a vote? Like, is it purely democratic? Is it, I mean, what does that even come from? And so some of the AI based, so again, this is brilliant computer scientists that don't have a philosophical or moral background or training say, okay, we'll do a thing called like inverse reinforcement learning, which is something like, let's just watch what everybody does and infer from that. Then we'll have a group or a committee that says, well, yeah, you interpreted that wrong. Let me correct you. Okay, so now that committee's moral absolutes become what's real and what the eye learns. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the first stage of learning from what humanity does, I mean, I'm sure that couldn't go wrong, right? Like <laughs> there's all these shining examples of us doing so well. And even there's three or four examples, Microsoft Tay, when they released that on Twitter, within a few hours, they had to shut it down because it became pro-Hitler and racist and all these things. And it's like watching people is probably not your best method of understanding what's moral and what's immoral, what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and this is where, again, it's frustrating because all of these discussions that I've seen are completely done by computer scientists, right? They're not done by theologians, philosophers, moral ethicists, these types of things. And so you're never going to get the right answer. You're looking in the wrong place. People have been very thoughtfully considering these questions for a long time. And my, my son, ZJ, in the last six months, he started taking a philosophy class. And so he's been reading Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all of those guys and going really deep in it. And a few months ago, we were having a conversation. He goes, Dad, this is like bedrock of civilization, you know, definition of right and wrong, definition of humanity stuff. Like, how come nobody's talking about this? I'm like, oh, ZJ, well, yes, you're exactly right. A yes, lot of these questions got answered a very long time ago, and the average person still doesn't know it. And that, that's exactly the problem that you're describing in the tech community. Most of those people uh, have not had an education in the humanities. They think uh, theologians are a bunch of clowns who argue about angels dancing on the heads of pens or something. And they- Very condescending look at the theologians, yes. Right. And they have no idea the depth in which these conversations have already happened. And they don't know where the ideas that drive Western civilization come from. And um, this is one of the reasons why I always tell people you should read something written before Gutenberg every day, because all of this stuff was figured out before the printing press was even invented. Sure. So it's not like I think uh, I'm reinforcing your point. It's not like you have to look very far to find some really good models to run on, but you, you have to respect what was done 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Well, it's a, it's a, a lot of hubris to say, hey, we're going to figure out the problems that are vexing humanity and civilization for thousands of years without considering what's already been done. 
Mm-hmm. And so the pre-Gutenberg, you know, like when Aquinas brought together the pagan philosophers and Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, tied that into Christian values and said, hey, look, we're like sympathetic over here. Like what they said and what they saw about the human condition and right and wrong and so on actually is in line with what? And so that led to, you know, Suarez. And so later people said, yeah, absolutely. This comes from Paul. I mean, that's why the early church attracted slaves, attracted women, right? Mm-hmm. Women were like, wait, we're equal. So there was a ton of women. I mean, one of the early popes was actually a slave. So he got out, of, he got his freedom and then eventually rose to, to be uh, the head of the church. And so, you know, these things, you know, and the counter arguments are always like, yeah, but what about this horrible thing that happened? And it's like, well, you have billions of people that have been Christian over the years. There's going to be some bad apples <laughs> like to say, hey, this bad thing, one thing happened. And it still pales into comparison to the 20th century atheist regimes, whether it's the tens of millions in communist China or Stalin or Lenin or Hitler or whatever. The natural progression of saying, hey, we're not any different than animals. Let's just mean in the biology sense, eugenics, right? So eugenics is, hey, let's engineer a better human through gene manipulation, or even, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it was mostly through stopping gene lines you didn't want, right? We want mm-hmm. people to reproduce that are undesirable. And that's a, a natural outcome of that. And so that's the challenge that I think we have is understanding that, look, you don't even have to believe in God to realize that there is a legal and a beneficial reason to accept that a God who gave us something unique as humans is going to possibly be the difference between extinction and not. Well, I think you're right. My, I don't think I'm overstating it, but you know that's a discussion we can have if uh, people think that that is an overstatement. But I, in that regard, I'm in line with the AI gurus. They're all saying the same thing. This is an existential threat, right? Your Elon Musk's and so on. They're just saying it for a different reason. Like, so what do you think is the way forward? From Where do we go from here? I think part of it is having the conversation. Right. If you went and watched a hundred videos on YouTube or whatever about AI, nobody is saying this. Like this discussion, I've not found anywhere else. So I think giving people the tools to understand and say, okay, I can chat with the discuss, have a conversation with a PhD level computer scientist about these things because this is an area that we can intrinsically understand. And it comes down to some basic things. What's a human? What makes us unique? If we can't define that, such as the Declaration of Independence today in like a sentence, then you know, we're going to really struggle. So I think that's huge. The other thing would be the Turing test, you know, understanding the difference between what is intelligence, which I think computers have already exceeded our intelligence. What usually people mean by that is utility. What can I do that's useful is more so than intelligence. So even if useful is beating me in a game of chess, okay, I I can show some level of utility there. Whereas a bacteria, we don't assign intelligence to intelligence because it's not useful in the way that it solves problems for itself. It's not helping me directly. And understanding that, okay, when somebody says this computer or this AI or machine is gonna be conscious, it doesn't have a free will. It doesn't have the ability to say, you know what, I'm programming you to hit a hockey puck. And you say, you know what, I don't wanna hit the hockey puck. I wanna sword fight with the robot next to me, right? And if you really just think about it on a very simplistic level, if you have children, and you ask your children to do something and you've been a loving parent and whatever. And they're just like, no, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here and play. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Like that's a free will. And there's no indication whatsoever that we even know how that works or that we can reverse engineer it to put it into computers. 
And so Absolutely. when people start talking about the sentience and the singularity, and you just say, where's the free will coming from? How are you programming that in? Where is that going to come from? And these are relatively straightforward concepts. I think that most people that don't have to be experts in anything can say, yeah, that's common sense. Right. Uh, so that's what I think is the step forward is getting these ideas out there so people can have those conversations and they can understand what I should be afraid of and what I shouldn't be afraid of. Well, that this has been a great, great conversation. And I, th I think you're absolutely right. We really need to be elevating this and getting it above the radar. And so yeah. I'm glad uh, you're talking about it. If people want to pay attention to you or be in touch, how should they do that? Uh, probably the easiest way is follow me on LinkedIn. So just Brian Truly. Look me up on there. You go to my website for my business, optimized-marketing.com. Yeah, that's probably the easiest ways. And I can give you a link uh, probably in the next few weeks to the book website. Well, very good. Again, very rich conversation. One that we very much need to have. Thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Appreciate the time. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.